0: Uh, Actually, this morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you'd please open your Bibles there. And again, a privilege for me to come and to share with you guys. Um, A couple of months back, I gave a series uh, to our church on the Ten Commandments, and God used it in a powerful way. And, uh, you know, people were blessed by it and, and we were, were moved by it. In fact, somebody even came up to me after it was all over and said, man, I'm really bummed that we didn't have more commandments to go over. And I thought, you know, you can't keep one out of ten and you want more. But nonetheless, very powerful, very moving when you consider the commandments that God has given us. And, of course, we know that they're uh, the most concise and uh, comprehensive code for living, and all over the world there's similar uh, things to the commandments that are given. I'm having trouble here finding Deuteronomy this morning. Hold on a second, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, also, we know that uh, they are the foundation of law and morality around the world, and, but, but I also believe that in many ways the commandments are misunderstood and misapplied uh, in our world today and in the church today, and I think a lot of people unfortunately have misunderstood the purpose of the commandments. Why did God give us this list of commandments for us to follow? What was their purpose and what was the aim behind it all? And many have viewed them as kind of that stairway to heaven, you know, the ladder to climb up to somehow become attainable or righteous before God. And so they, you know, look at the Ten Commandments as, you know, if you keep those, somehow you'll earn your way to heaven and all the rest. But that's not their purpose at all. So what I want to do this morning is consider the purpose of the Ten Commandments, and how they apply to your life today as a New Testament believer living in the 21st century. And so the title of my message this morning is A Gauge of Love, and let's take a moment and ask God to bless our time together in his word. Father, thank you that you've given us these commandments that we're going to consider this morning, and I recognize God, we recognize that these are a high standard, yet they show us your heart. They show us your will and your desire for us, and I pray, Lord, that we would understand their purpose this morning, and that, Lord, you would bring about the work in us, God, that you desire to do through them, that we might throw ourselves at your feet for your mercy and your grace, Lord, our new every morning. So we look to you today, we ask you to teach us and speak to us through your word this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name, and all the church said, amen. amen. Well, have you ever noticed how we like to measure things? especially ourselves. We like to see how we fare against other people and standing up against them. For instance, I would venture to say that if you have small kids in your house, uh, right now there's probably a wall somewhere or a door jam somewhere in your house where you've taken your kid, backed them up against the wall, took out a pencil, drew a little line, right? And, and you've measured them from the ground up. Here's how tall you are. Here they were at 8. Here they were at 11. Here they are at 19. And it's kind of neat to see that progress. I find it interesting that we don't find them going the other direction as we get older. Here I was at 40. Here I was at 50. Here I am now at 60. Because we all know that we shrink as years go by. But it's fun to measure ourselves in those ways, um, you could probably tell by looking at me that I'm a little bit vertically challenged. In fact, I'm kind of struggling with this pulpit being so high uh, this morning. But I've been challenged all my life. In fact, uh, I really shot up my junior year of high school, so that tells you a lot right there. I mean, I was it was even worse before then. But I remember my senior year of high school, they came into our classroom and they were measuring us for the cap and gown, and some of you've been through that and. So they backed us up against the wall, and I remember I really stretched it out, man. I wanted to get as much you know, height as I could, and they measured me at 5'7", and I was so excited to be 5'7", and uh, in fact, it was a bummer, though, when I got to graduation and my gown was dragging on the ground because it was too long, because actually I was 5'6", however, my son, a few months back, we measured him because he's like 6'1", And uh, we put them up against the wall. I thought, you know, I'm going to give it a try again. It's been many years since I've done this. So I got up against the wall and and drew the pencil line. And I was five, six and a half. And I thought to myself, all these years, I've been jipping myself out of a half inch. And that means a lot when you're my size, trust me. But we all like to measure ourselves. We like to put ourselves against others. And of course, uh, now there's this whole thing called Facebook. And if you go on Facebook and you're one of those people who do... You find that there's all these little quizzes to measure yourself. And there's things like, what kind of dog are you? And you answer like a series of questions. And uh, I came up with some really hyperactive, small English dog that I never heard of. And then they ask, you know, what city should you live in? I got Seattle. What Star Wars character are you? And I answer all the questions. Yoda is who I got. I don't know what that means. But nonetheless, we love to measure ourselves In these different ways. And of course we measure ourselves by standing up against a scale. Or by measuring our waistline. Or getting fit for a dress. Or fit for a tuxedo. And sometimes we like it. Other times we don't. But we enjoy seeing how we fare. Well listen. The Bible teaches that God has given us something. By which we can measure ourselves. A standard by which we can measure our spirituality. Our commitment. Or even our love. It's a mirror that we can look into. And see ourselves as we really are and where we really stand with God, and where we really stand with other people around us. And of course, I'm referring to the Ten Commandments. God has given us this gauge by which we can measure ourselves. And to many, the Ten Commandments are none other than an archaic, outdated, outmoded principles of another time and another era that are no longer valid for the world today, because we live in this society where we have basically created our own laws, and we don't need God's laws anymore. We've evolved our laws and our standards by which we live that we think that they're better than what God has given us, and all those things God has given us are no longer valid. They're useless, even illegal. In 1980, the Supreme Court of the United States banned hanging the Ten Commandments on the walls of our schools, and the majority believed that the commandments, quote, had no educational value to schoolchildren, so they took them off the walls. They wrote in their ruling, quote, if they posted the copies of the Ten Commandments, or if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read them, to meditate upon them, and perhaps even venerate and obey the commandments, which they went on to say is not a permissible objective. In other words, what they're saying is they might actually keep them, so we better not post them on the walls. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's the very reason we should post them and let people see them. And unfortunately... Even many believers say that they're irrelevant today because we're no longer under the law. We're now under grace as New Testament believers. And it's kind of done away with the law because now we're under grace. And so rather than even keep them, we don't even know what they are. In fact, it's been said, Barna Research, that less than five, uh, less than half of church growers can even name five of the Ten Commandments. And I wonder how we would fare here this morning if I was to do a little test and ask you, could you name at least five of the Ten Commandments. That's only 2% better than non-churchgoers, and it's no wonder that George Barna went on to report and said, according to his research, we find very little difference in the ethical behavior between churchgoers and those who are actively religious. The levels of lying, stealing, cheating are remarkably similar in both groups. Eight out of ten Americans consider themselves Christians, but very few can even recall even five of the Ten Commandments. And I find it interesting that that's the case because Christians will speak out boldly and say, you know, we should post these commandments in our courtrooms, in our classrooms, in all of our public places. Yet at the same time, we can't even name more than five of the commandments. And it's interesting that that would be the case. Mark Twain was once approached by a man that said, you know, I want to go to Mount Sinai. And I want to see the very place where Moses received the Ten Commandments so that I can get maybe some kind of spiritual insight as to the purpose of the commandments. And Mark Twain said, i got a better idea than going all the way to Mount Sinai. Why don't you stay home and keep the commandments? That would be the first thing that you can do. And I thought, that is so true. Alistair Begg said in his book, Pathway to Freedom, if we are prepared to be honest, we face a we face in contemporary evangelicalism that duty along with truth has fallen in our streets. The average Christian attendee has grown accustomed to responding to sermons that appeal to their felt needs and their sense of well-being, in other words, warm and fuzzy messages, that we are prepared to be coaxed, but we're not prepared to be commanded. Even in the church, as a departure or a negative approach, to the commandments of God, as a list of should-nots and ought-nots that have left many of us tired and bored. But the problem lies not in the commandments, but in the fact that we are fat and flabby, and that we've we've not heeded nor wanted to heed the call of God to duty. Or as J.I. Packer put it, the root cause of our moral flabbiness is that we've neglected God's law. What happens when you neglect the commandments of God? Alistair Begg went on to say there's a number of things that you can expect. You can expect, number one, the absence about the seriousness of sin in people's lives when you ignore the commandments, a superficial preaching that appeals to men's felt needs and affections, a listlessness and lawlessness in the lives of professing Christians, the absence of the fear of God in public worship and private living, the wholesale giving over to the culture, that's around us and a growing confidence in ourselves and a loss in the confidence of the word of God. That's what happens when you ignore the commandments that God has given us. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a definition of our society today. As Gresham Machen once said, the only remedy for society's decay is the rediscovery of the law of God that we need to get back to our duty in keeping God's commandments. Because I believe That there's never been a time when knowing and living the commandments of God is more important than right now. And in many ways, there's never been a time when they're more relevant than right now. And some people ask the question, well, are the Ten Commandments relevant to the life we live today? Absolutely. They are relevant to you right now, right where you sit. And the fact that we've neglected them is the reason that we're in the mess that we're in. And I think the major um, problem is that we lack a proper understanding of their purpose in our lives today. And since we know that we can't work our way to heaven by keeping them, some people say, well, you know, you can't earn your way to heaven, so why even try? And we throw the baby out with the bathwater, but herein is the problem because there's a number of very important purposes that God gave these to us so that we could live our lives in honor and glory to him and that are relevant in our lives today. And I want to consider what these purposes are with you this morning. But let's begin by reading together Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 6, where he lays out these commandments. You should know them well. If you don't, you might want to memorize them. But here we go. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Who takes his name in vain? Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your sons, you nor your sons, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that you may be well; it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now, again, you guys are familiar with this list of 10 commandments. The first four you could, say, deal with our relationship with God, having no other God before him, no graven images, keeping the Sabbath day holy, and all the rest take, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. And then the last six deal with our relationship, if you will, with other people. And after giving this list of the commandments, notice with me in verse 29 what God says, or Moses writes here. He says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me, and always keep my commandments, and the next phrase is the key, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Herein is the first purpose for the commandments. And that is, number one, to be a shield for our protection. A shield for our protection. Notice he says there that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Sometimes we get the idea that God gave us this list to kind of spoil all our fun. One pastor wrote, he said, to hear some people talk of the commandments, that to do so as if God came down to check out what we were doing, then made up this 10-point program to wipe the smile off all of our faces. In other words, God wants to spoil all your fun. That's why he gave you these commandments. And that's the attitude of some, yet specifically the 10 commandments have not been given to spoil your fun. They've been given to protect you from the harm that will come if you violate them. In other words, it's been said the Ten Commandments are fences to keep you from the pain of breaking them. If we obey the commands, we'll spare ourselves a ton of heartache and hardship and hurt. And yet if we violate them, we're going to find ourselves reaping what we've sown. David the psalmist said, this is why I delight in your commandments, because I recognize that they are going to keep me from harm. They're going to keep us from being in danger. It's kind of like car seats. You have children and you put your kids in a car seat. You know, years ago when I was younger, we didn't have car seats, of course, so we used to get in the back of the station wagon, remember that? And dad would take a turn around the turn, you know, and you'd go rolling one way in the back of the station wagon, and then they'd go the other turn, you go the other way, and we'd get down under the seats and down down between the uh, floorboards and all the rest, and those were the good old days. And now we have car seats and we have them, and we put our kids in them, not because we go, well, gosh, if I don't, You know, the police are going to come and give me a ticket. Usually we do it. Why? Because we want to make sure our kids are safe. And we recognize that if you put them in a car seat, they're going to most likely survive a lot quicker than they would if they're not in a car seat. And we don't do it because the law tells us to do it. We do it because it protects the life of our child. And in the same way, God's commandments are given to protect you, to keep you safe from hurting yourself and hurting those that you love. The same Ten Commandments may seem very narrow, but so does every runway to a pilot coming in from thousands of feet up, looking for that thin strip of cement to land that plane on. And no one of, none of us want him to land a few yards off or a few blocks off. We want to make sure he lands right on the pavement. And that airstrip is given for safety so that when we land, we'll find ourselves in safety. And listen, it's no fun playing games without rules, and even worse, a society without Laws. Trying to commute through L.A. without any traffic laws would be a nightmare. And the standard of rule is given for our protection, just like warning labels. God has given us this list to say, here's what you can do to protect yourself and to live a life that is going to be much more harmless than it will be harmful. In 1997, there was an award given for the Wackiest Warning Label Contest. And they do this every year to kind of highlight some of the absurd effects of lawsuits on warning labels. And in 2007, the winning label was put on the side of a large tractor. And it basically just said this, danger, avoid death. That was the warning label inside. You know, danger, avoid death. Well, thanks for the warning, you know. Obviously, that's what I'm going to do. Another one that came in second place was a iron-on transferred T-shirt and it had a warning label that said, do not iron while wearing shirt, in case you want to know. I mean, that's, that's it. Third place was a label found in a baby stroller that featured a small storage pouch, and it advised on the storage pouch, quote, do not put child in bag. I know that that might be tempting at times, but don't put the child in the storage bag. So it's a shield for our protection. God's given this to us to protect us. Secondly, the commandments were given, number two, as a compass for our direction. Look at verse 30. He says, go and say to them, return to your tents, but as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, and the statutes, the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am given you to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has has commanded you. In other words, he's telling them, this is to give you direction. I'm giving you these commandments so that you won't turn to the right hand or to the left, but you'll stay right where I want you to be. God's intention was to lead them and guide them by his commands. Psalm thirty five says, make me to walk in the path of your commandments. Proverbs said, for the commandment is a light and a lamp unto my path. Psalm 119.66 says, I believed your commandments before I was afflicted. I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, the commandments were given to keep you and I from straying to the right hand and to the left, but keeping us right in the center of God's will. And we often ask the question, what is God's will for my life? What pleases God? What honors God? Well, God has given us a clear, concise list that answers that question. What God's commands is what God desires. And when we read this list, we realize this is what God desires of me. And if I want to know his will, this is the starting point. And many people drift away because their lives are out of order, yet they could be dramatically transformed if they took the commandments seriously and applied them to their lives. Back in World War II, American planes flew from Great Britain to Germany to do sorties over Germany and drop bombs. And many times they were returning from their flights they had a hard time navigating the, the, uh, the ground because they had that, you know, that English fog that would roll in in the middle of the night and they couldn't find their way to the airport. And of course, they didn't have the technology we have today. However, for them, the, the blessing was that there was a bunch of churches all around the airport and the steeples rose up out of the fog and they were able to navigate their way to the airport simply because the church's steeples were their guideposts. And of course, in this world, we have a moral fog. And the spiritual weather is horrible. The Ten Commandments are the signposts to show us the way to safety. And that's what the commandments become for us. It was the Puritans that believed, quote, the highest spirituality was to be seen in a life that rejoiced to be commanded. And I think we live in a society today where we don't like commands, we don't respect authority, and yet the truest life spiritually, according to the Puritans, was a life rejoicing to be commanded. That's why the psalmist said in one nineteen twenty four, "Your testimonies are my delight, and they are my counselors. They give me guidance." So, not only is it a shield for protection, not only are they a compass for direction, but my favorite, and this is really the key of the message today, is they are a gauge for evaluation. They are a gauge for evaluating our love for God and our love for others. In fact, I want you to turn from Deuteronomy over to Matthew chapter twenty two for just a second. In Matthew 22, we have Jesus giving us a definition of the Ten Commandments. Now, how often have you honestly asked yourself, how loving am I as a person? How much do I love other people? How much do I really love God? And we can uh, you know, think that we're loving others and think we're loving God, but the truth of the matter is, how can I really show my love? And the answer to that question is important, because love is important. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, if we don't love God or love others with the love that He describes there in 1 Corinthians 13 that we are like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, that we're basically making nothing but a bunch of noise. Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 something very important about the commandments. He tells us that they are a gauge to measure our love. Notice with me chapter 22, verse 35. It says, actually, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying here is the Ten Commandments are summarized in these two commandments, namely, What are called the greatest commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in another passage, he said that if we love him, we would keep his commandments, right? And Jesus said on this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. These ten commandments are summarized in the two commandments, and these two great commands, loving God and loving others, are really the encapsulation of... Of the ten. And this, again, is a reason why some people say, well, we don't need to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. Well, why is that? Because we're just to love each other, right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Just love each other. If we just love each other, then we're going to keep all the other of the Ten Commandments. We just need to love each other. What matters most is love. And I agree with that. But the question is, what does love really look like? How do you know that you're really loving God? And how do you know that you're really loving other people? What's the proof of that? What does love look like? Alistair Begg put it this way, he said, What does love that we claim to have look like? Unfortunately, in our sinful nature, we tend to twist love into any shape that seems convenient to us at the time, and we are in desperate need of moral direction from God. Well, the Ten Commandments spell out what love for God and our neighbor looks like. The content of our love for God and our neighbor is not for us to decide because we're too sinful and too selfish and too foolish to make decisions about these matters. Without divine holiness, love, and wisdom, we will go all wrong. And the Holy Spirit uses the Ten Commandments to guide us. We are not left to figure out what love will look like, for the law guides us in what love is." You see, the Bible says that love is not an emotion, love is an action. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So what does love look like? Well, we can go to the commandments and we can gauge that love. And the problem we have in our world today is we want love without law. We want love without anything to hedge it in. And yet love without anything to hedge it in and without law turns into sentimentalism and the law without love turns into legalism. You need the law and you need love to come together to help us to know what love is is really all about. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how do we know what love is? We need both. John MacArthur said, an examination of the Ten Commandments reveals that they are ten features of love verbalized. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. In other words, the two commandments to love God and love others are an encapsulation of the ten. And listen, the ten are an expansion of the two. And too often we'll be quick to claim, I love God and I love other people, but how do we really know that we're loving? Well, we can go to the Ten Commandments and we can see what love for God looks like in the first four. We can look at what love for other people looks like in the last six. So let's give ourselves a test this morning and let's look at a couple of these commands and let's see how we measure up in loving God. We might say, I love God. I love God with all my heart. Okay, what's the proof? Well, I I feel all warm and fuzzy when I come into church and I worship. You know, when I was raising my hands, I got tingles down my spine. I love God, right? Well, let's evaluate our love for God by looking at these commands. Look at the first one, verses 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Sorry, you need to turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I do too. He says there in verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. There's the first commandment. Now we all know what this commandment's all about. Having no other gods before our God. Why? Because he's delivered us out of the land of Egypt. In the case of the Israelites, he's delivered us out of the bondage of sin and judgment that we had against us and made us one of his children. We shall have no other gods before him. In other words, this commandment is all about making God the first priority of your life. That he is to be the person of supreme importance to you above and beyond and before anyone or anything else. Anything that we place in front of him becomes a God before him and is a violation of this commandment. And when we do those things, they become other gods or idols to us. Webster's defines a God as someone or something that is the object of your adoration. It's that which gets your most affection and attention, your most energy and effort, your most time and talents, and your most submission and service. That is your God. That is your idol. And can you say with me this morning, well, that is God in my life. He gets the first of everything, or does he not? Alan Redpath put it this way, an idol is that which is most precious to you, that which you are willing to make the most sacrifice for, that which moves your heart, with the most affection that thing that if we lost it would leave us the most destitute what is that thing in your life if that thing isn't God then we're violating the first commandment first commandment is to have God and he's first to love the Lord your God and we might say Lord I love you you're awesome you're beautiful you're wonderful you're majestic you're holy you're glorious I give myself to you and the question is, have we really surrendered ourselves completely? Is he the number one priority of your life? If not, then we violated the first commandment. Well, I love God, but is he number one? I can't say that he is if he isn't. In fact, I heard the story, maybe you heard it before, about the Pope that had some heart trouble many years ago. I don't know if the story's true or not, but he was having some heart trouble. And they went to the doctor and said, you know, Pope, in order for you to survive, you're going to need a heart transplant. And uh, the whole, you know, church found out about this, and the Pope was out on that little pedestal one day, and all the people were down there knowing his condition. They're shouting out, you know, Pope, take my heart, take my heart, I'll give my heart to you, Pope. And they're crying out to the Pope over and over again, take my heart, take my heart. And the Pope thought, well, this is great that people are willing to give their life up so I can live. And he decided to take it to prayer, and he came out one day, and all the people were gathered below him in that huge arena there that he was in, and he's standing out on that little patio, and He's looking at all, all over the people and they're all shouting, take my heart, Pope, take my heart. And he said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a feather and I'm going to drop that feather down and it's going to come down. Whoever it touches, that's whose heart I'm going to take, which would mean death for that person. So sure enough, the Pope comes out and drops the feather and all the people are taking my heart, Pope, take my heart. And as the feather got closer, take my heart, whew, take my heart, <laughs> blowing the feather to the next guy. You know, that's, that's the commitment. Many times, oh, I love you, God. You're everything to me. And yet when it comes down to it and the rubber meets the road, we're blowing away the feather. We don't want to follow through with the commitment. It tells us that God is going to be number one in our life. How do I know my love is real? The answer is, is there anything in your life that you put before God? Kids, career, relationships, hobbies. Who is number one in your life? Through the commandments, he's saying, this is how you love me. Put me first. Let me be the priority of your life. So this is the commandment number one. How are we doing so far? Everybody with me? I don't know that any of us could say that we've kept that one. Let's go to the second one, though, because it gets a little better. Look at number two here, verse eight. He says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth Generations of those who hate me. All right, we found one here. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not setting up any idols at my house and bowing down and worshiping them. Anybody else here doing that? I mean, maybe in your garage you got an idol that you want to go, but I haven't carved anything. I mean, I don't think I've ever done that. So I feel like I'm doing pretty good on number two here. I don't have uh, anything to really be ashamed of here. Uh, But listen, why does God even give this command? Well, first off, he gives the command because he recognizes that there's no way that you and I could ever make anything that could ever resemble God. You can't make anything out of man's hands, out of materials of this earth that could ever accurately represent God, because God is spirit, the Bible says. And you can't make anything that would ever represent him accurately. In fact, anything that you and I would ever make would always fall miles short of who God is. So don't even try it, is the reason he gives the commandment. Not only that, but number two, when we make a graven image, what we're doing is we're making God into something that he's not. And if somebody was to make something, oh, this is what God is, it's always going to, again, fall so very short. Now, you and I might say, well, good, I don't do that. I don't make any graved images. I don't have any carved totem poles at my house. I don't have any little shrines to anybody. You know, I worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what the Bible says to do. And although we may not do that with wood or stone, listen, sometimes, oftentimes, we are tempted to do it, however, with our minds and with our hearts. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, How often have you heard people say things like this? My God would never allow people to suffer. My God is a God of love. My God doesn't make a big deal about sexual orientation or adultery. My God is a God of understanding. And and I don't like the fact when people call my God a jealous God. My God's not a jealous God. My God is, or my God is just. People say God is just. God is, God is tolerant. God is accepting. God is all love. And I love God. I love the fact that he's all these things. But do you see what's happening right there? Is you're changing who God is into an image of somebody or something that you like and that you love. Rather than taking who God is as he's revealed himself in scripture and saying, That's the God I worship. That's the God I love. For who he is, not who I am making him into being. And listen, Romans chapter 1 tells us this. It says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. In other words, they didn't love God, although they knew God. For who he was, so what did they do? goes on to say, Romans chapter 1, they suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They remade God into an image of their own likeness, a God that they can love and worship. And they worship the creature rather than the creator. And the rest of Romans tells us why, so that they can do and live as they please, not having to be responsible before the God who's revealed himself. And this is the truth. We're remaking God into something we love rather than loving God for who he is and as he's revealed himself to be. How can we say we love God if we want to change who he is? The, the, the whole thing about being a Christian is to discover that God is beyond our understanding and beyond who we are. And the whole journey of the Christian life is to discover this God and to know him and to love him for the fact that you can never completely comprehend him. That's what makes it so awesome. And we accept who he is and we love him for who he is, not who we're making him into being. You see, we can create graven images about God that fit our fancy and that things about God we love and reject the things we don't. All we're doing is violating the second commandment that God has given us. So how are we doing so far? We, we broke the first one. I think a lot of us have broken the second one. How about the third one? He goes on to say there in verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In other words, if I love God, I'm going to honor and uphold his name. I'm not going to bring his name to them, but I'm going to live up to what that name Christian is all about. When I live my life out in the world, I'm going to do things that bring honor to God's name, and I'm going to be very careful not to do anything that's going to dishonor his name. So here I am, gauging my love towards God. I love God with all my heart. Okay, is he first in your life? Are you remaking God into an image that you like? Are you accepting God for who he's revealed himself to be and loving him for that? Are you taking his name in vain? Are you glorifying the name by the way you live? How about the next one? Keep the Sabbath day holy, he says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commands you. If I love God, I'm not going to show That by working my life away, I'm going to at least take one day off out of seven to dedicate to the Lord and to worship him. If I love him, I'm going to spend time with him. If I love him, I'm going to trust him enough to take care of me by only working six days and giving him at least one. And not working my life away to to make ends meet for myself, but trusting him because I love him. You see, each one of these commandments are a gauge for us to say, this is what it looks like to love God. How about my brother? How about loving each other? Well, you can go on to the next <clears throat> six here where he says in verse 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So if I love people, the first relationships that should be most important to me, of course, are those people that are closest to me, the ones who've brought me life physically in this earth as my parents, that I would honor them. If I'm going to love other people and I can't love my parents, those who are closest to me and honor them, then I'm basically fooling myself and everyone else. No, those are the people that I should love first and foremost. It's obvious. And then you go on and you say, well, how about the next one where it says uh, there, don't murder? Well, that one I've not done, right? I mean, I've not. You guys murdered anybody in here? I mean, we haven't. But the Bible says, Jesus speaking in the New Testament, that if we look at our brother with hatred and we call him a fool and and we, we have hatred towards our brother, it's like committing murder in our hearts towards him. So we've all done that, unfortunately, and so we've violated that command. But listen, if I'm going to love other people, of course I'm not going to hate them. And we can't, love, we can't love if we be hating, right? And the same with adultery. How can I love others when I can't be faithful to the most intimate relationship, an important commitment I could ever make to another human being in this world, in this life, and that is to a spouse. If I can't keep that commitment, how am I ever going to love anybody else? You see, they they all line up as a gauge or a mirror for us to follow. Obviously, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet or the rest. All practical ways that we can show and measure our love for God and our love for other people. So I encourage you to go through these and, and look at that and evaluate, you know, how loving am I as a believer? How do you measure? You might say, well, you know what, now, Pastor, that you read these off, I don't measure up all that great, you know, at this point. I mean, I realize, man, I've violated a number of these commands. In fact, I'd I'd venture to say that we've all violated all of them. I don't think there's a person in this room that could say, well, I've kept, you know, two or three of those. No, no, we've all violated all of them. In fact, when I went through this series, we went through every single one of them in detail, and it was like I felt like we were climbing a ladder every week. Okay, here's the first command. We all took a step up, and then by the time we were done, that rung broke, you know. The next week, we took a second step, we got going, all of a sudden that rung broke. And by the time we got done, we realized we never even got off the ground. We've all broken all of God's commandments. And that's what leads me then to the final purpose of the commandments. And this is found in Galatians chapter 3, if you turn there from Deuteronomy 5. Galatians chapter 3, and that is they are a mirror for reflection. In other words, the commands were given to show us, to show you and me, listen, that we're not good enough that we can't keep these commandments we could never keep these commandments they were given to show you and me that we are sinners in desperate need of a savior that we are dirty and that we are wretched and that we are blind and that we are naked and that we are in desperate need of god's grace that's what they were given for to show us like a mirror all the dirt that's really in our lives and as we look at these commands we realize you know I haven't even got up one step on the ladder i ain't getting very far The commandments are to point us and to show us our sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. 7. He says, I wouldn't even have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known that coveting was really about, but the law said don't covet. So he knew he was a covetous person. And like a mirror, we hold it up to see our true reflection, our true selves, sinners in need of a savior. The commandments show us. That truth, And without the Ten Commandments, we live in this blissful ignorance of our dirt and sin, and yet we let the light shine upon us of God's law, and we realize how dirty we all really are. Thomas Carlyle, the great Puritan, said, "...the deadliest of sins is the consciousness of no sin." And the Ten Commandments give us the consciousness of our sin so we can do something about it, so that we can run to Jesus for His mercy and His grace. That's the whole purpose. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3, in verse uh, 19 through 24. And once I get there, I'll read it to you. But Galatians 3, he says there, verse 19, he says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's a reference to Christ. And also was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which should have given life truly, righteousness would have been given by the law. But the scriptures confined us all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What's he saying? He's saying the law was given, the commandments were given, to point us to our deepest and desperate need for a Savior, Jesus. And we were under that law to guide us right to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was a tutor to bring us along. John Calvin put it this way, the law is a mirror showing us the spots on our faces and sending us to Christ for our cleansing. See, the Bible says that by the works of the law, no man will be justified before God. In other words, that we, even if we could, from this moment on, keep the Ten Commandments, we violated them. The Bible says in James 2.10 that if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all, but we've offended in all ten points, so we're guilty of all, and that there's not a person alive who can keep them, and we'll never be justified by them. The only way that we can be made right is by the perfect sacrifice for sin and the incredible grace of God, and that, of course was through Jesus Christ. There's not a person in this room that has kept the commandments. None of us have ever been made righteous by them, but Jesus Christ completely and perfectly lived every single commandment, and yet died as a sinner when he died on the cross. And God is gracious and willing to forgive us, and the good news is that God regenerates us, gives us the Holy Spirit. The good news is that God has the ability, or given us the ability to love him and love others, not by keeping the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. As uh, Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul the Apostle writes this and says, Now there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, God has now given us the ability to love and to keep his commandments by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. May God help us to meditate and memorize and apply and to gauge our love based on his commandments that we might know that we're loving God and we might know that we're loving others. So what are they for? They were for number one, a shield for protection. Number two, a compass for direction. Number three, a gauge for evaluation. And number four, they are a mirror for reflection to point us and show us our sin and our desperate need for jesus christ and maybe this morning you realize because the bible says that we are all sinners every single one of us has sinned against god and because god is holy and we are sinful god cannot allow a sinful person to dwell in the presence of a pure holy god his holiness would consume us in a moment there's no way that we can just you know okay forget it come on into my kingdom god can't do that he's got to deal with the sin and so what did he do you know the story Bible says Jesus came, lived a sinless life, kept the commandments perfectly, kept the law perfectly, yet he went to the cross and he died as a sinner because he died in my place and he died in your place. And he took the penalty of our sin upon himself that whoever believes in him, the Bible says, would not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says in, in uh, Corinthians 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death. We lived a sinful life, but Jesus died for us and has given us his perfection. So in essence, you could say that as God looks at you, once you put your faith in Christ, as if you've kept all of the commandments. So I can say, you know, I've kept them all. I didn't, Jesus did, but he did it for me. And he's made me righteous before God. And now me as a sinful person can enter into the presence of a holy God and forever dwell with him in eternity and to have an intimate personal relationship with him right now. And maybe this morning you've joined us and there's never been a moment in your life where you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. In other words, where you've asked him, Lord, when you died on that cross, would you die for me? Because he's already done it. Would your death count as my death? Would your righteousness count as my righteousness? The fact that you, Jesus, have kept all the Ten Commandments. Can I have that? And you take my sin. That's a pretty good deal, by the way. Take all my sin and give me all your...